Okay, it's good morning. I understand I'm uh, speaking to a live audience, probably not a very big audience out there. For those that tune on, in on Facebook, I'm really sorry by linking to this and uh, listening to what undoubtedly will be labeled hate speech by some who may get kicked off. But I've been trying to get kicked off Facebook for a while. In some ways, it'd be sleep, sweet liberation, but I don't know how if it's possible or not. Uh, maybe I don't... I'm not influential enough. It's only if you're popular. We as Christians shouldn't desire that. We shouldn't desire to be popular or well-known. We should have the attitude of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was very popular. There were many who were curious about him and came down out of Jerusalem and out of Judea to see what this man was doing in the desert. But John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That was the attitude of that great prophet, and that ought to be our attitude as teachers and preachers of the Word of God. We're not here for our benefit or to show everybody how much we know by quoting Greek from the pulpit or getting into these complex outlines. We're here for the brethren, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists. All of these things are for the edification of the body. And so with the teacher comes great responsibility. And our responsibility is for the brethren. That's why we must lead them, not lord over them. Um, it's interesting that, that Matthew brought up earlier persecution that's coming to this country. I believe this to be true, and I have, in a sense, seen it this past week or so. And I think this is an interesting reminder ahead of what we're going to talk about today. I really believe corporate persecution is coming to Christians in this country, not so open from the government, but through corporate interests. I hear rumors or I see articles online or in, in media outlets about certain banks and companies canceling accounts with people because of their viewpoints or because of uh, their political positions. And I understand that in the news media, in the world of news, especially online news, there's a lot of fake news. And that fake news doesn't only come from the left. There's not only exaggeration and fake news in the national news media, in the leftist news media. There's also a good measure of that on the right. There's also a good measure of that in Christian media. Okay, I saw earlier this week in... In uh, an article, I believe it was on Breitbart, the headline accused Bernie Sanders of saying something that he didn't say. He didn't specifically say that. It was fake news. Now, the guy's a lunatic. Only a very foolish and stupid people would ever uh, elect somebody like that as a president. Don't put it past the American people. We're some of the dumbest and most foolish people on the planet because we've rejected God's word. But he didn't say that. It was exaggerated. I've seen it with other things. So we have to be careful. But when I see and hear things, and then I see an evidence of it in my own interactions, it makes me take note. I've seen and heard things about these people. Supposedly some pastor in New Mexico or Arizona, I don't know where it was, Supposedly, they got a call from Bank of America that said, we're canceling your accounts, we're closing your accounts, look for a cashier's check in the mail, and wouldn't give him any information, and they suspected it was because of some 
social media post or some stand he took for the Bible or something God says in his word. I read that initially. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about all that. There's more to this story. Probably fake news. But I was forced this week to pause because I saw things very uncomfortable in my dealings with my bank that makes me think this stuff's coming. Every year about this time, the ministry gets a phone call from Bank of America. They want to update or verify information. I'm usually out of the country, so I don't get the call. I ignore calls that come from numbers I don't uh, uh, recognize. And if somebody's not going to leave a voice message, I'm not going to call them back. Uh, But I get a call, and then I'm not there, and I don't answer. And then I get this notice in the mail that says, if you don't respond to us to update your, ver- your identification or your, your business information, we're going to close your accounts. Well, as a faithful customer to this bank, both personally and in our ministry for many years, I'm offended when a bank sends me a notification like that. And this has been going on. I'll call in there and I've got to answer questions for like 30 minutes about information that's readily available that's not changed. So it's aggravating, and it seems like every year the questions get more in depth. Well, this year I've had enough. I got this notice in the mail. I went to the local branch, and I said, look, this is unacceptable. I've been a faithful customer here for years, and you would send me a a, a letter threatening to close my accounts because you couldn't reach me on a telephone to get information that you already have available. And the folks at the local branch are very friendly. They've always been helpful to me. They were baffled kind of baffled, didn't know what to do, so they called into the central office and they said, no, we have to have this contact once a year, blah, 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 blah. So I had to end up getting on the phone with somebody. And just as I predicted, the questions were more invasive and more particular than they were last year. In fact, it got to a point that the questions made me uncomfortable to the point that I said, that's not any of your business. You don't need that information. She asked me what was the nature of our ministry, and I gave her the same answer that I've given to the federal government. It wasn't enough. She wanted to know more, and I said, I told you what was sufficient. So when that stuff starts happening, I think, maybe there is truth to this. Then I got a call a couple days ago from another individual at corporate Bank of America saying, hey, we would, we're reaching out to you. We want to schedule a time where we can meet so you can describe to us and talk to us a little more about what your ministry is and what it's about. And I just laughed and I said, ma'am, I said, I don't have any reason at this point to make a, an appointment with you guys to give you any more information. I don't need anything what now, right now. How about if something comes up and I have a question, then I'll contact you guys. And so this stuff's coming to us. And if the Lord doesn't come for his church, we're going to have to make a choice about whether we care more about truth or about convenience. And more than ever, we need to take a stand. The best way to fight this type of pressure is to stand up against it. It's the same thing we tell our students in martial arts. I caught an interesting photo yesterday Uh, when Bethany was fighting against five adult men that were rushing at her at one time. And in that instance captured in that photo, she's going after them. That's how we meet it. That's how we fight it.
like that rattlesnake in the grass. Not going to bother you if you leave it alone. Leave it alone. It won't bother you. It'll even warn you not to approach with the rattle. Don't bother, don't bother me. No problem. Don't start nothing. Won't be nothing. But when the threat comes, what does the rattlesnake do? It strikes. Don't tread on me. That was the battle cry of our early founding fathers. And the, the symbol was the rattlesnake. Don't bother me. There won't be a problem. But when you come, we're going to stand. We're going to stand. And we need to be considering these things. These, these things are real. And we're going to have to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to what we believe. Are we going to cave to these corporate pressures or are we not? They're coming. And when they come, we need to remind ourselves of the things we're getting into here. Because judgment's coming. Just like what God showed the prophet Ezekiel five years after he was taken captive, about seven years before Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Ezekiel saw that fire coming out of the north. Judgment was coming. But yet out of that fire were those creatures that John saw in, in Revelation 4, those wheels within a wheel, that, that connection between heaven and earth. Out of that judgment, it became a, uh, apparent that behind the <coughs> events of earth are always the operations of heaven. And then above all of that, he saw the firmament and the throne of God with that rainbow. Above all of that is the sovereign hand of providence. And that rainbow about the throne reminds us, just like what John sees in Revelation 4, that out of judgment, God is merciful. And he remembers his covenant to his covenant people. And there is a pro final promise of blessing, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the church. So it would behoove us to remember that these things are the outcome. That there is a king who's coming. He's going to set up a throne. He's going to rule and reign. And before this earth and these heavens are dissolved, this earth is going to be done right. As it wasn't done. Israel is going to do what it was raised up to do. And so we can relax. <laughs> take a stand and relax. Let them come. Come and take it. There's a few things in this life that my government, my fellow man, the wicked will pry. They will only receive and they can only obtain when they pry it from my cold dead fingers. One of them is my Bible. Come get it. My children. My guns. My flags. They can only pry it from here. But the word that we've hidden in our heart, they can't even get it. So come and take it. We're going to get into Revelation 20 today. Revelation 20, here we have a turning of the page. Here we have a transition from one age, the present age, into the age to come. It's an amazing bridge in the book of Revelation. If we look at chapter 20 by itself, in the context of the outline we've already used throughout the book, the main focus of the first 10 verses is not the millennial kingdom, even though that is encapsulated here. Even though there are some details about the kingdom of Messiah revealed here. 
It's more of an aside because the millennium is all over the Old Testament. Lots of details, lots of glimpses of Messiah's kingdom. It's something the Jews have been waiting for from time immemorial. Some details are shared for us in this chapter. But the main context or purpose of the first 10 verses of this chapter is the destruction of Satan. And in the last verses, 11 through 15, the final destruction of the wicked. So in chapter 19, at the end of the tribulation, we have the return of Messiah, the battle of Armageddon. We've seen the destruction of the beast and the false prophet. Now we're going to see the destruction of Satan, his incarceration, and then his ultimate sentence. And we're going to see the final destruction of the wicked. So there are a number of things to be resolved that we see resolved here. And then when we get into chapter 21 and 22, we make another transition into the age of the ages. World without end, <coughs> the eternal state. We get a glimpse of the new Jerusalem, which some would say transcends the millennium and the eternal state. And we see that which is the desire of all men, ultimately, to see things made right. This earth in its state, present state can be done right. The curse can be removed and Israel can be what it's supposed to be. Christ can reign with his saints. All of those things can happen and must happen for the purpose of redemption. But for eternal righteousness, there must be a new heaven and a new earth. That's right from its inception and never, ever fallen into wrong. So these are great promises we have to look at. We have a panorama of future history that spans the ages. Genesis looks back into eternity past. Between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 is an eternity past. We don't know hardly anything. God was in the beginning. In the beginning, He created heavens and earth. And then between His creation, something went void. I don't know what all that means. We've talked about it before. But God was. And in the beginning, God, God, the one who cannot be seen by men, God that can be revealed to the face of men, the Son, and then the Spirit of God existed in eternity. Eternity past. So from Genesis 1-1, we have eternity past. Brings us to the present creation quite quickly. We see the workings of this present age all the way down to the book of Revelation. We transition into the kingdom age here. And then with 21 and 22, we look forward in history... How do I say we look forward in history? How do I say history when I say, should say future? Because it's already been written down. It may as well be history. It's God's story, His story. It's been written down. We look forward into eternity future, which is described in both the Old Testament and the New Testament by Paul as world without end. This world will end, but the world that's coming, the new heavens and the new earth won't end. Won't end. These are exciting things to consider in the dark, troublesome times in which we live because they are just as sure 
as the great falling away that we're experiencing now that's been promised. They're just as sure as the warnings and the omens that were given to our, us by our founding fathers. Our founding fathers in this country knew that the day the United States was established, the day that Constitution was ratified and became law, was the day it was guaranteed that this nation would die. They knew it because they knew human nature. And they knew that this was the best they could do when dealing with fallen human nature, is restrain it. And they knew that the day would come when a document that's designed for a moral and God-fearing people would be useless when a people was not moral and not God-fearing. They foresaw these things. They were sure. Well, the things that are foreseen here that are unto our edification are just as sure. What regards wickedness is predictable and discouraging, but what regards ultimate righteousness is just as predictable and encouraging that makes any sense. So we're going to talk a little bit about the millennial kingdom here in Revelation 20. We're going to talk about the eternal state, but we don't want to neglect the central focus, and that central focus is the destruction of Satan. Our adversary will one day not be defeated, but destroyed. And keep in mind, when I talk about destruction and destroyed, that doesn't mean annihilated. Something can can be destroyed and yet not annihilated. The worst type of destruction is eternal destruction. And that's the type of destruction we're talking about here. The wicked, the antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, eternally destroyed. An eternal burning. Far worse than an instant annihilation out of existence. You know, the, the, the man who says there is no God, many of which are Jewish people, We'll say, oh, there's no God, the Holocaust proves it. Well, if that's true, then the Hitler and the Nazis you hate so much got away with everything they ever did, and you're no different. You'll end up in the same place. Boy, they get angry, but it's true. If there's no God, if there's no eternal justice, then... The Nazis got away with everything they ever did. <clears throat> and we're no better. I don't care how many times you go to church on Sunday. You're no different. But there is a God. It's funny to hear the powers that be in this country today talking about obstructing justice. They want to say that our president has obstructed justice. How can that be true? Justice was murdered in this nation long ago by judges and politicians. There is no justice in this country. So how can it be obstructed? And I'm not talking about social justice. The world's idea of social justice is an abomination in the eyes of God. True justice has fallen in the streets. But there will be justice. That's why we need a king. That's why we need a Messiah. And he's coming. There will be righteousness. In fact, when true justice comes... Righteousness and mercy, it says in the prophets, will kiss one another. Something completely foreign to the nature of God is revealed in the Quran. It's not the same God. In fact, the God of the Quran, my God's going to arrest the God of Quran, the Quran, bind him, 
and cast him out of this earth. Because the God of the Quran is the Nahash, the, the, the serpent that's in the Garden of Eden. And his end is coming. That old serpent, the devil. That's a little bit about what we want to talk about. Turn back to Revelation 1.19. It's important as we make these transitions in the narrative that we remind ourselves of the central theme of this book. People get into trouble teaching Revelation because they forget about the outline that Jesus gives us. They want to make their own outlines and say, well, this is the same event being described a different way, and this is not literal, it's a symbol, and a thousand doesn't mean a thousand. Israel doesn't mean Israel. The church doesn't mean the church. And if we just use the, the outline Jesus gives us, everything would make sense. Revelation 119, Jesus appears to John in the isle that is called Patmos. John was imprisoned and exiled on this island, a victim of political and corporate persecution for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was in prison. The one who gives us these visions, the instrument God used, was a victim of corporate and governmental persecution for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. If we are persecuted, may it be for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to John as he is the high priest of the New Testament church, as the king of Israel, as the Messiah. And he said in verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. We're going to see some keys here in this chapter, just like we did in chapter 9. There's some copies out there. There's some copies that have been given out, but Christ holds the master key. He holds the master key. He can copy it and give a copy of it to whomever he wants to. But we serve one who is alive forevermore. And this is what he tells John. Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Simple three-part outline of the book. What has John already seen at this point? He has seen... Jesus the Christ as the coming Messiah. He has seen him as the high priest of the church, walking about the candlesticks. He has seen him as Daniel saw him in his visions. Behold in the night visions, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came and stood before the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom. John seeing the same thing. Daniel, a Jewish prophet. John, a Jewish eyewitness. Seeing the same things. That's what a lot of these Israelis we talk to about the New Testament don't understand. These are Jewish eyewitnesses. That eyewitness the very things your Bible and your prophets said would come. Things which thou hast seen, chapter 1. The things which are. John was living in the church age. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The Christians had been scattered. Rome was in power, persecuting believers. Peter, Paul, and most of the disciples were dead, martyrs. The things which are the church age. That time from Pentecost until the rapture of the church. The things which are the letters to the seven churches. 
Revelation 2 and 3. We talked about all that. Ephesus, the backslidden church. The apostolic church in church history. Smyrna, the persecuted church. The early Christians that were persecuted and scattered after the subsequent generations. After the apostolic church. We have the church at Pergamos. The Catholic church that began with Constantine. And married to the world. The worldly church. Thyatira, the unrepentant church, the state churches of the Middle Ages that butchered so many. The dead church, Sardis, Reformation churches, started a good work but didn't finish it. The Philadelphia church, the faithful church, the missions movements, the evangelical churches of the 17, 18, early 1900s that took the gospel into all the world and then the Laodicean church. The lukewarm church, the modern church, it's all painted for us, the things which are. And then the things which shall be hereafter. Suddenly John was called up to heaven, the same place in God's history, which includes our future, that the church is raptured out, and then we have the tribulation, what's called Daniel's 70th week, that time of trouble that comes to judge the earth, the rise of Antichrist. We've talked about all these things, Revelation 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, all the way here to the coming of Christ. Now we're going to see the millennial kingdom, the eternal state. These are all the things which shall be hereafter. So things that John had seen, things which are present that we see even now. Are we living in the Laodicean church age? Are those letters to the seven churches actually a prophetic picture of the church age? Well, duh. Any elementary student of church history can see it. Are we living in Laodicea? Well, you'd have to be blind not to think so. Laodicea, the rights of the people. That's what it means. That's what the church is all about. It's all about us. Even so much that there are churches and Christians that think that we are the ones who usher in the millennium. Even Southern Baptists talk like this. And it drives me crazy. I heard somebody talking about recently, they, they had something to say as I was sharing about our ministry. And a lot of times people, you know, they, they want to one-up you when you're sharing. and I just give it right back to them. But it's like, you know... You know, some of this may be true you're saying, but we got to remember, we, we're out here sharing the gospel and, you know, uh, we've got to preach the gospel to the whole world. Only then will Christ come back when we've witnessed to the last person. Well, they cite a passage that Jesus uses about the gospel going into all the world. They rip it woefully out of context and try to apply it to the church and insinuate that Christ's coming is dependent upon us evangelizing. Are you kidding me? The amillennialist and the postmillennialist, those that look at the scripture and teach those things may as well be deaf mutes that can't hear and can't speak. Because they would say that we're living in the millennium now, that Satan's bound now, that man's getting better and better, and we're going to usher in the kingdom. That's Catholic teaching. That's kingdom of God here on earth. That's failing to distinguish between the literal kingdom of heaven and the spiritual kingdom of God, making them one. And trying to make them one without the one who can do it. That's Christ the Messiah. People get in a lot of trouble here. Because they cannot follow a simple outline that Jesus gives us. We're still in the things which shall be hereafter. Chapter 4 through 22. That includes the tribulation. 
what Daniel calls the 70th week, seven years. The last half of that Jesus refers to as the great tribulation. This period of time has two purposes. One of them is to judge the world. The faithful church is it worthy to escape these things. The church at Philadelphia was told, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of temptation that's coming upon the earth. That is our hope as believers. To judge the world. Secondly, to wake up the nation of Israel. What we see in Israel today is a modern miracle. The national bird of Israel is not an eagle or a cardinal like it is the state bird here. The national bird of Israel is the crane. I'm not talking about a crane that feeds in marshlands or swamps. I'm talking about a construction crane. Because every time I go over there, there's cranes everywhere building something. And that's the joke. That's our national bird. Building, building, building. It's amazing. It's prophecy coming to pass. But Israel's got a big problem. It's the same problem we here in America have, so I'm not going to stand in judgment upon them. They think they've done all that. They think they have done it, and they've forgotten God. And if they knew the Scriptures, they would realize that all of this is being built up so that it can be destroyed. And when it's destroyed, Israel, the remnant that remains, will be driven to Messiah. They'll have no option but to call upon him. They've been brought to their utter end. And he will come. And he will rescue them. Those are the two purposes of the tribulation. The things which shall be hereafter include that. It includes the age to come. The kingdom. What Jesus refers to as the kingdom of heaven. The literal physical kingdom that comes down from heaven and reigns here on earth. When Christ will sit not in a throne at the right hand of his father, but will sit upon the throne of David. Mary was told when she was visited by the angel that he shall rule. He shall sit upon the throne of David his father after the flesh. The age to come. We have the tribulation and then the age to come. The age to come, the word used here in Greek is kelioi. It means kelios. That's, if you ever hear that word kelios, it's a reference to a thousand. It, in, in, in Latin, we say mille or million or not million, a mil in Spanish. It means a thousand. Okay? Million is not mil in Latin or Spanish. It's a reference to a thousand. So that's where we get the word millennium. Millennium comes from the Latin, which references to, uh, to a period of a thousand. The millennium is a period of a thousand years. And we see this reference in Revelation uh, chapter 20. We see it in the first six verses enunciated not once, not twice, but six times. Six times we're told a thousand years. So there's no reason to believe that a thousand doesn't mean a thousand. If we can just randomly say in this context that a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, then why couldn't we say salvation doesn't mean salvation? All doesn't mean all. And some people do that. You know, the Bible says Christ came to die for all the world, 
Not for ours only, John says, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, all doesn't mean all. Christ only came to die for the saved and the elect. That's not what it's saying at all. Your allegiance is to a theological system and not to the Word of God. Christ didn't die for our sins only. He died for the sins of the whole world. Does that mean the whole world's going to be saved? Well, if you think man is the chief beneficiary of God's redeeming work, you have a problem. But man's not the chief beneficiary of God's redeeming work. His anointed is. His Messiah is. And since Christ is the chief beneficiary, he died and paid the price for the whole world, and therefore, whether men receive it or reject it, he's glorified. Whether men are saved or judged, he's glorified. The atonement is only limited if you think man is the chief beneficiary. That's where we've erred as the modern church. We think it's about us. It's not about us. It's about the Messiah. Six times in Revelation 21 through 6, we see this reference to a thousand years. The age to come, the kingdom, the millennium. This is a period of a restored earth. Not a new earth, a restored earth. A restored earth where there is no serpent. There is no Satan. Then we, we're going to see at the end of chapter 20, the next major events, the great white throne judgment. After the millennial reign of Christ, after all the promises are fulfilled and God shows himself true and every man a liar, the wicked are pulled out of their holding cell of hell and they answer for the things they have done. And they are judged. And they're taken out of the God's county jail and thrown in God's state pen where the beast and the Antichrist and Satan himself will be. The great white throne. Then we have what's called the eternal state. A new heaven's and a new earth. These are the things which shall be hereafter. We're in the midst of it now. We're nearing the end of the church age. We're waiting for that rapture. Then will come Daniel's 70th week. Then will come the uh, repentance and, 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 and salvation of the nation of Israel. Just like Paul suddenly on the road to Damascus woke up and saw Jesus for who he was. Same will happen to the nation of Israel one day, those that remain. Then we have the restored earth. Then we have the final judgment. Then we have the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The millennium is referred, we, 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 we think of as the age to come, but then there's the ages of the ages, not a restored earth, a new earth, new heavens. The restored earth will exist within the current heavens. The new heavens will exist, I mean the new earth will exist within new heavens. This is what's referred to as the ages of the ages. Isaiah calls it world without end. Paul in Ephesians 3.21 calls it world without end. Isaiah 66, new heavens and a new earth. Ephesians 2, the ages to come. Turn to Ephesians 2. You know, we often think about the reign of Christ here on earth as the culmination. As the culmination, as the consummation. It's not. It's part of that, but it's not the end. It's not the ultimate consummation. The ultimate consummation is not when we're redeemed from the penalty of sin, not when we're redeemed from the power of sin, but when all creation lives and exists apart from the presence of sin. When we as the saints are raised 
at the rapture, raised in rapture, and we receive our new bodies, we're redeemed from the presence of sin. We live and reign with Christ, but the earth itself isn't redeemed from that very presence ever, this earth. This earth will have to be destroyed and built anew. Oh, there'll be righteousness, but there'll be wicked men that even when there's no devil, they still have their adamant nature to battle. And you see when the devil comes back, we're going to see in chapter 20, he doesn't have to make allies. He's already got collaborators waiting. Turn to Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Actually, I'll start at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. That's not religion, guys. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Present tense. What's so sure for us to sit in authority and power with Christ is so sure it's spoken of as in the past tense. A futuristic aorist here. A futuristic past tense. That in the what? The ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. That's the consummation. The ages to come. The present heavens and earth will be dissolved. God won't destroy it by a flood. He made a promise, but he'll destroy it by fire. He'll make a new heavens and a new earth. And in those ages to come, we will be the beneficiaries of his riches his grace and his kindness and all the great mysteries will be made known. That's the age of the ages. That's what we're looking for. The eternal state. Paul references all of these things in the context of the revelation. So this is, I mean the resurrection. So this is not just stuff I'm coming up with or reading into the text. These are things that agree with what's written elsewhere in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse, starting at verse 22 I'm going to read a little bit about the resurrection. Again, this is all by way of introduction into chapter 20. Revelation, I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Not everybody automatic, but those in Christ, all that are in Christ shall be alive. We can only be in Christ by grace through faith. We can only be in Christ if God draws us to him, John 6, 44. But every man in his own order, every man made alive in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. When there comes a harvest, when the crops come, there's always the first fruits. Then there's the harvest, the great gathering. And then after the harvest, you have the gleanings. We're enjoying the gleanings right now at home. I planted some Kale, last fall, I believe, there were some first fruits. There was a harvest, the mo the, 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 much of which was enjoyed while I wasn't even around. Now we've got some nice kale in the garden that survived the winter, the gleanings, and we're eating salads off of it. So it's the normal way of things. The same with the resurrection. The first fruits, Christ, the first fruits. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. Not just him, though. What happened, it tells us in Matthew chapter 27. There was a great earthquake there in Jerusalem. The veil of the temple was rent. And then something 
opened. A lot, uh, something, some things opened. What were they? Tombs. Tombs opened up. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today and you look on the hillsides, particularly on the Mount of Olives, on the hillside below Mount Moriah, there's tombs everywhere. <coughs> some of them are very ancient. You can walk back in the hills and find tombs or earthquakes over the years. I remember you know, up near Galilee somewhere, an earthquake not terribly long ago uprooted some old tombs that were in the, in the hills from the days of Herod. You just see broken coffins up there. So that's a, it's a very, uh, the imagery there is very real to read that and then to see Jerusalem today. But there were tombs that, that opened up, tombs of righteous people, of saints, and then we're told that some of these saints were seen walking around Jerusalem after Christ's resurrection. See, when Christ died and was buried, he went to hell, he emptied out paradise, and he led captivity captive. Once his blood paid the price, he offered it on the heavenly tab tabernacle. And sometime between that resurrection morning when he met Mary Magdalene and he said, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to my father. And then later that day when he met those women going up over the Mount of Olives to Bethany and they grasped him and hugged his feet. No contradiction. Sometime in that interval, he ascended up on high, offered his blood in the heavenly tabernacle and led what's called captivity captive. The first fruits of the resurrection. The Old Testament saints raised up. Paradise is empty. It's a VIP lounge in the, uh, the, the underworld. What Jesus described in Luke 16, there's nobody there anymore. Abraham's bosom. He led captivity captive. That was the first fruits of the resurrection. Every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. That's the harvest. At Christ's coming, okay, his, the rapture, the dead in Christ. Those that are alive and remain. The great harvest. This also includes the tribulation saints who were raised up as well at the end of the tribulation. So Christ coming here in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to both His secret coming for the church and His public coming that we just talked about in Revelation 19. That harvest, I'm sorry, that um, harvest is the church. The gleanings are the tribulation saints and we see else, this elsewhere, but uh, Christ's coming is referenced, uh, both of those are referenced here in verse 23, because then he goes on to say, then cometh the end. What's the end? So we have the first fruits of the resurrection, the harvest, which are the raptured and resurrected saints prior to the tribulation, the gleanings, those that believe the preaching of the Jewish witnesses in the tribulation, many of them pay for it with their lives, the souls under the altar in Revelation 5, praying to be avenged. They're the gleanings. They that are Christ that is coming. The church, his secret coming. The rapture, I mean, the, the uh, tribulation saints, his public coming. Then cometh the end. What's the end? When he shall, delivered, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. So between his coming... In the end, there's a kingdom. And in the end, he delivers that kingdom to God, even the Father. When? When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. When does Christ put down all rule, authority, and power? It doesn't happen in Revelation 19. We're going to see in the end of Revelation 20 that there's a rebellion. 
There's a rebellion when Satan's loosed for a little season. So when he puts all those things down, then this kingdom will be delivered up to the Father. That's the end. For he must reign, verse 25, until he hath put all enemies under his feet. He must reign. He must reign on this earth. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. <coughs> death isn't completely destroyed when the church is raptured. It's not completely destroyed when he returns in Revelation 19. Because at the end of the millennium, what happens? The rebels surround the camp of God and fire comes down from heaven and destroys them. And then we see that not just the dead, but death and hell are raised to stand before the great white throne and then they're cast into the lake of fire. That's the ultimate destruction of death. There will always be death in this present creation. The absence of death comes after the final judgment in the new heavens and the new earth. But Christ must reign. He must reign over this present creation. He must reign on this earth. Verse 27, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested that he is accepted. In other words, when everything is finally put under the feet of Messiah, even the rebellion at the end of the millennium, then it is clearly manifested that he and he alone is accepted of all men. He is God's anointed. He is the Messiah. There is none other. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, verse 28, then shall the Son himself also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is not saying that Jesus is not God. This is saying there's coming a time when the Son has fulfilled everything then he will deliver up the kingdom to the Father and even the Son will be subjected unto the Father. What? That God, Father, Son, and Spirit may be all in all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Echad. Not distinct and separate. One. Just like a man and a wife when they come together. The two shall be one. In Hebrew, echad, flesh. The evening and the morning were one day, Echad, that God may be all in all, the triune ruler of the new heavens and the new earth. So we see all of these things which shall be hereafter summed up when Paul talks about the resurrection. The end spoken of here is the age of the ages. But that doesn't come before all rule and all authority is put down, including death. Christ must reign. He must reign. This is the millennium. And we, we see it referenced here in Revelation 20. Verses 4 through 6 kind of encapsulates what is detailed throughout the Old Testament. Christ must reign. Why must he reign in this present creation with his saints who will already have an eternal resurrected body? Why? Because the promises to the fathers must be fulfilled. Israel, who is redeemed, must do what she was appointed to do. She's never done it right. 
Israel has never done what God told them to do. They've never been a light to the nations in the way they were supposed to be. They never followed the law of God the way they were supposed to be. They never took the law and taught the nations like they were supposed to be. They will. They will. That's why you have a temple. That's why you have sacrifices. That's why you have these things in the millennium. People read the end of Ezekiel and they can't wrap their minds around the fact that there will be animal sacrifices in the millennium. If you don't like it, take it up with God. Why? Because Israel must do what it was raised up to do. And Christ must reign. Those sacrifices don't exist. Well, they exist to do the same thing they did before Christ came, to point to Messiah and to point to his authority. We're going to talk a little bit about that because Ezekiel tells us why those things will be observed. He gives us the answer, but people look at it like, oh, that can't be. Jesus died on the cross for our sins, so none of this is literal. It's all spiritual, and there's no such thing as millennium. In fact, we're living in it now, and man's getting better and better and better. See what happens when you don't read between the lines, when you don't read what's written, when you don't pay attention, when you don't let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's a problem. People get in a lot of trouble. We can, we can take God's word at what it says. <clears throat> Only after all things are subdued, including man's sinful nature and his bent toward rebellion, something that we will be seen at the end of the millennium, only then will the Son subject Himself unto the Father that God may be all and in all into the new heavens and the new earth. Now as we talk about these things, understand there are two earthly entities that transcend the present age, the millennial reign of Christ into the new heavens and the new earth. They transcend. One of those is the nation of Israel. God says in Isaiah 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. The seed of Israel as a nation will remain. It will transcend the kingdom age into the age of the ages. The church is another entity that will transcend. It exists today. Some saints dead, many alive. I keep kicking that thing, sorry. To be raptured and receive the resurrection body prior to the tribulation, to return with Christ, to rule and reign with Christ in the millennium, and to, be, and to transcend into the age of the ages. We just read it from Ephesians 2. That in the ages to come, we're the beneficiaries. The church, Ephesians written to the church of God's grace and His kindness. So Israel and the church transcend the present age, the age to come, which is the millennium, and the age of the ages, the eternal state. If we, as we get into chapter 21, we're going to see the bride, the Lamb's wife, which we know to be the church, but it's manifested also as the new Jerusalem. The home of the, of the, uh, the Lamb's wife is identified as the wife. It's one and the same. It's our home, our residence. The new Jerusalem descending out of heaven. Some would teach that this too makes an appearance in the millennium and transcends into the age of the ages because of its connection to the bride of Christ, the body of church of Christ. I'm not dogmatic about that one way or the other. It's very clear when we get into Revelation 21 
that we're in the new heavens and the new earth. So whether that transcends, I think you could make the argument either way. But on the word of God, it's very clear that Israel and the church transcend these things and continue. We have eternal life now, my friends. In Christ Jesus, he that believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Christ, your life eternal is now. It's not something you're waiting for in the future. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Our bodies will die, but we have eternal life now. Life that will continue to the end of this age, through the tribulation with the Lord, down through the millennium and into eternity. That's why Paul says, and so we shall ever, ever, ever be with the Lord. Praise God. Think of your eternal life as now. Not something out here in the future. Think about it as now. We have it now. Why should we fear? There's some interesting transition events that take place between the coming of Christ at Armageddon, Revelation 19, and the inauguration of the Messiah's kingdom. So we tend to look at these things. Okay, Christ comes back. He sets up a kingdom. He rules for a thousand years. Understand there are some transitions that will occur. It's not like that. There's a transition. Just like there was a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christ came. He paid the, his, he paid the price of sin through his death, burial, and resurrection. Just like the prophets talked about. He walked with his disciples. He promised them the Holy Spirit. He went back to heaven just like it was prophesied. The Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. The church was born. The church grew. The church was scattered. And we're in the present church age. It was a time of transition. That's why you had people, that's why you had signs and wonders that were given in the transition between Pentecost and the completion of God's revelation. That's why Paul in his missionary journeys came upon some formal disciples of John that believed the message of repentance, believed that Messiah was coming, made themselves ready, but they hadn't heard that he did come. And so Paul took them aside and instructed them more perfectly. These were probably those that later became the elders of the church at Ephesus. And what did they do? They spoke in tongues proving that what they received was the same thing the Jews received in Caesarea at the preaching of Peter and the same things that the Gentiles, I mean, I'm sorry, the same thing that the Jews received at Pentecost and the same things that the Gentiles received at Caesarea when Peter went to preach to Cornelius and his household. Those, those three times that people speak in tongues when they're converted were a demonstration to the Jews that exactly what you've received, the Gentile, are upon the Gentiles. Exactly what you received is the same thing that John was preaching. That was the purpose. So this idea that you have to speak in tongues to be saved, that's rooted in a misunderstanding of what tongues is in the first place. If you'll go to Israel today and you'll sit in a church, it's amazing. There are churches there today that are much like this. They operate just like this. It's, it's encouraging. Mostly Jewish people, but not everybody in there speaks Hebrew. Some only understand English. There's a lot of Russian speakers, French. Go visit one of those churches where the Word of God is being taught. See how they handle it in the 21st century. You'll know exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 when it comes to tongues and interpretation. You'll know exactly. Don't have to explain it. 
Oh, that makes sense. It's not all this gibberish, gibberish, she left on a Honda, hostile shandai, untie a bow tie. It's none of that. It makes perfect sense. There's so much in this book that is easily explained when you go to Israel today. It's a, let's don't forget it's a Jewish book. God used the Jewish people to give his word to mankind. Jewish prophets, Jewish eyewitnesses. So a lot of things that we in the Western world make complicated are so easily understood when we just go and observe it. Observe Jewishness in its Jewishness. That's why it benefits any Christian to go to the land of Israel. Not to go, per se, on a big tour. The thing that drives me crazy in Israel is all of these quote-unquote Christians come over there. A lot of Catholics, Orthodox, don't have a clue about biblical salvation. But even evangelical groups, they come over and they go on these big tours. And it's all about going here and going there and staying in these really nice hotels and eating these big breakfasts and being ushered around like cattle on buses. And I ask myself, do any of you all ever stop and think about being a witness to the people of this land while you're here? Do you ever stop and think about it? Do you ever stop and think about actually asking questions and trying to get to know the IDF soldiers that you want to have a picture with? Do you ever think about maybe trying to share the gospel with these people you want to get a picture with? It's really sad. The best way that we can be a blessing to Israel, this is what Jewish Israeli Christians will tell you. The best way we can support Israel, if we say we support them, and we do because of God's promises, the best way we support them is through the Great Commission, the gospel. And supporting and praying for the believing Jews that are in that land today trying to carry out the Great Commission. Understand something. There's no such thing as a Bible-believing Jew who rejects Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. No such thing. I don't care what yeshiva you went to. I don't care what synagogue you sit in. I don't care how many years you've studied the Torah. If you reject Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, you're not a Bible-believing Jew. Because who the Messiah is is all over the Old Testament. And if you believe that, then you would see very clearly that the Messiah of Israel was Yeshua HaMashiach. He came once, and He's coming again. But there are those that do, and they have a difficult job to be a light in their own nation. That's how we support Israel. Not by giving money to entities and politicians who yoke up with rabbinic groups that persecute believing Jews. It's amazing to see these type of things. But there are a number of transition events that bridge Armageddon, the victory we just talked about in Revelation 19, the Antichrist and the false prophet are picked up by the nape of their neck and cast into the lake of fire alive. First inmates in the lake of fire. They don't go through the county jail. They go straight to the state pen. Then we have the inauguration of Messiah's kingdom. This shouldn't be fancy. I mean, when a president gets elected in November, he's not inaugurated till January. Same thing happens here. Chapter 19, verse 20, beast and false prophet are cast alive. In chapter 20, the first three verses, we see the imprisonment or the incarceration of Satan. So one is followed by the other. <coughs> now there are some transition events that are mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures that have been a source of confusion 
for a lot of people. But they become clear when you, can, when you consider that from the time a kingdom is established, it has to be inaugurated, just like our presidential elections. And then we have the millennial reign. But there's some interesting transition events that the scriptures uh, map out for us. We know that from the midpoint of the tribulation, the tribulation is a seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week. We're told in the middle of that week, Antichrist, who's pictured or presented himself as a friend of Israel, a false Messiah. Keep in mind, the Messiah that the rabbis are looking for today is the Antichrist. He's the one they will follow. They don't recognize the true Messiah. They will. But they're looking for him. He comes in his own name, Jesus said. You will believe one who comes in his own name, but you haven't believed the one that came in his father's name. But from the midpoint when he betrays Israel and desecrates the temple, that's the midpoint of the week, we're told in Daniel 9. Therefore, we have a period of three and a half years. It's what Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation. This agrees with what we see elsewhere. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, we're told that the period from the scattering of the holy people, that's what happens when Antichrist betrays Israel. Israel that's regathered in the land is scattered. Is scattered. From the scattering of the holy people until the finishing of that dispersal, what happens? Christ redeems, he rescues. He's seen there on Mount Zion with his witnesses. That is what's called a time, times, and a half of time. So in other words, a unit of time, two of those units of time, plus a half of, of that unit of time. One plus two plus a half, three and a half years. It agrees with what we've already seen and called the middle of a week in Daniel 9. Revelation 13, 5, we're given a period of 42 months in Revelation 13, 5, we're told that the beast out of the sea, which is Antichrist, that was, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given to him. Remember, the throne of God sits above all things. That's why the power was given. It wasn't earned. It was given. Yesterday, in our dojo, a black belt was earned, not given. It was one. A brown belt... Vance Red Belt. Ranks were won. They were earned. Because we're not a dojo that gives away belts. There's a lot of black belts out there that are given. An instructor who's got the big sensei belly and who can't train like he used to and doesn't know how to teach and can't reproduce in his students what he's learned, he's got to puff himself up so he does that by giving out belts. It's an age-old story. Men's nature's never changed. So think of the Antichrist as like one of these black belts that looks tough, that talks tough, but remember his rank was given to him. It was given to him. Those ranks yesterday weren't given, they were earned. Big difference. He can only do what God allows him to do. And there comes a time when his work is done and God puts a stop to it. 42 months. 42 months is 1,260 days in terms of 30-day months as the Jews observe. So we see here that midpoint of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble comes to an end, three and a half years. 
But there are three other measures given that actually exceed three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation, and bridge into the kingdom age. So there are other events that bridge those two gaps, just like there were events that bridged the gap between the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament church age, events we see in the book of Acts. Look at Daniel chapter 12. I just find these things interesting because we need to remember that these prophecies, these things that are promised are real. These are real events that are coming. And when we consider these things, we're reminded this is real. This is not some pie in the sky floating around on a cloud, something off in the future that should have no effect on us today. This is real, real things. Daniel chapter 12 verse 11 And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up. Israel rebuilds a temple in the last days. The daily sacrifice is reinstituted. God never told them to build that temple. They're going to do it anyway in preparation for the man of sin. We're told that from the time that the sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, the abomination of desolation, which has been prefigured in history, types and types and types, is what Antichrist does in the middle of the week. From that time, there shall be 1,290 days. So here we have a period of 1,260, 42 months, the time of Antichrist's reign, three and a half years, plus an additional 30 days. So what does he mean that, okay, what, what about this extra 30 days? Well, obviously it's transitioning. What's going to have to happen? Christ is going to come back, but what's going to happen to that temple that was built without God's command? It's going to be cleaned up. It's going to be raised to the ground. And unlike the Temple Mount today where there's stones still piled up that the Romans pulled down, it's going to be raised to the ground and it's going to be cleaned up. There's not going to be wall, ancient walls that people are going to and bowing their head back and forth and sticking prayers. It's going to be raised to the ground and cleaned up. In fact, when we read about the land of Israel in the millennium in the book of Ezekiel, the land itself is going to be raised up. The entire topography is going to change. When Christ puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, it actually splits the mountain in two and makes a valley... And waters are going to flow in such a way that what is the Dead Sea now becomes very much alive and becomes a haven for fishermen. So I believe this 30-day period references the time it'll take to get in there and raise all that mess to the ground and clean it up and prepare it for what's coming. But Daniel doesn't stop there. There'll be 290 days until that desecrated temple, a thousand, I'm sorry, 1,290 days until the temple that was desecrated is completely removed. So what's been desecrated has to be erased. So there'll be a 30-day cleanup period. But, verse 12, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,335 days. So blessed is he that waits an extra 45 days. And comes to 1,335 days. That's 
That's um, 75 days after Antichrist is removed from power. So blessed is he that waits till that. Well, that tells us there's a transition period. I believe this is a reference to the coronation of the king. We see in Ezekiel that the entire land is going to be reorganized and allotted to the 12 tribes in a way very different than what it was in the book of Joshua. I believe this, uh, this 75th day after the overthrow of Antichrist refers to the official start of the millennium kingdom. The thousand years won't start ticking until Messiah is inaugurated. Until he's inaugurated. So we have a transition period. The millennial reign doesn't start ticking in Revelation 19. There's a transition. Just like God's clock, his atomic clock for Israel, stopped ticking after 69 weeks, the 70th week doesn't start ticking until Antichrist makes a treaty. There's a gap. There's a gap here. Antichrist is overthrown. Blessed is he that waits till the 1,300... In 35 days, that's the official start of the millennial kingdom. There's a transition. And then we have a third event that's measured, but we see this back in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. This is in the context of the cleansing of the temple. The reinstitution of the temple as it should be. Then I heard one saint speaking and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall the vision, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So now we have another period that's 1,040 days after the overthrow of Antichrist. 965 days after the kingdom is inaugurated. And it's in the context of the cleansing of the temple. This is a temple, the second temple was standing when, uh, or was in the context of these prophecies. And there's reference made to historical events that took place uh, after the building of the second temple. It was commanded by God to be built. It was built. And so in this context, we're talking about the temple existing as God intends it to exist and operate as God in intends it to operate. How long is it going to take for the sanctuary to be cleansed and to be used again as it's supposed to? 2,300 days, 1,040 days after Armageddon, 965 days after the kingdom begins. What is this a reference to? Well, it's obviously a reference to the construction and dedication of the temple we see in Ezekiel. It will take time. Messiah is inaugurated. The kingdom begins. And then what's his first building project? What's his first building project? The millennial temple. In fact, we're going to see the entire city of Jerusalem is going to have an interesting look to it. It's going to be far bigger than it is today. The temple in the millennium is going to be far bigger than the temple mount. But that's his first building project. 
And so the sanctuary is cleansed when the new temple is built. And this new temple exists to do what the temple was supposed to do. So that means Antichrist temple, what gets us real excited when we see things happening toward that end today because we know prophecy is true, it's coming close. But that's going to have to be erased from the ground. Messiah will be inaugurated. The, the, the millennial kingdom will begin and his first building project will be the construction of the millennial temple. So there's some events that are happening that transition from one age into the next. These are real events. They're not spiritual restatements of cloudy, pie-in-the-sky things that we can't understand. They all make sense. One of the, one of the first things that will also happen when Messiah uh, is crowned king is exactly what Solomon did. It's, in, it's interesting to see how it's, uh, uh, um, Messiah's millennial reign is going to mirror what, what Solomon's was. Solomon was given the kingdom. David died. He became king. There was a transition where he was established as the true king. What was, what was a building project? The temple. What was something he had to deal with? He had to deal with rebellion. And he had to execute sentence very quickly after he became king. We see that against several people. We see that against his brother. We see it against Joab, who was a constant problem for David. We see it against the, the Shimei, the guy that came out and cursed David when, I, when he had to flee because of Absalom. So we see judgment. Same with Messiah. Another thing that's going to happen very quickly after he's crowned king is the events we see in Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats judgment. This is not a picture of the great white throne. This is a picture of Messiah when he sits on his own throne after he comes with the angels of heaven and the nations are gathered before him. It's a judgment of nations. Those nations are judged. Some nations are cast out. Some are allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. These are nations of people, men that survive the events of the tribulation. There will be people that survive and continue on into the millennium that still have their natural bodies. The curse from the earth will be removed and men will again live to ages as they did before the flood, but there will still be that Adamic nature. Sheep and the goats is the judgment of nations. And what are they judged upon? They're judged upon how they treated Christ's brethren. Who are his brethren? The Jews. Who are the objects of persecution? During Daniel's 70th week, the Jews, there will be those that give them refuge. They will enter into the kingdom. So there's the judgment of nations that takes place. This is laid out in Zechariah 14. There are nations that will continue in the millennium and will be obedient for a time, but they will rebel. They'll refuse to come up to Jerusalem and worship at the Feast of Tabernacles every year. Therefore, they won't get any rain. They'll get a drought. These things are written up. Isaiah tells us that there's, when all of this is consummated, the earth is still here and there's a few people left that enter into that kingdom. So man's nature will endure. Satan will be bound, but that Adamic nature will endure. Now we as the saints will live and rule with him. We'll be in our resurrection bodies. And we'll be part of that judgment. But these things will happen. The Matthew 25 judgment of nations. We're told in Isaiah 45 that one of the first things Messiah will do is he will build his city. He will build his capital city. So the building and construction of the new capital, Jerusalem. So there's a real events that are going to happen and transition into this kingdom age.
Why do I talk about all that? Well, so you can remember details? No. So that we can be reminded that these are not dark secrets that we can't understand. We're given a map of the future here. Let's read it. Let's know what we're waiting for. It will give us courage to stand in days of persecution. During the, when the temple is, is, is built there in Jerusalem, there will be a daily sacrifice reinstituted. Well, why? You can't say that. Christ died on the cross. No, we're told why. We're told why. I'm going to talk about, a little bit more about this later. It's for Israel's discipline. It's for her instruction. And it's for her provision. We'll talk about that later. Suffice it to stand there. So we have these transition events between the victory at Armageddon and the coronation of the king. One of those is what's emphasized here in Revelation 21 through 10. The, the imprisonment of Satan. The, the restraining, the sealing, the imprisonment of Satan followed by his ultimate destruction at the end of the millennium. Verse 4 to 6, as I've said, in case the millennium, a host of details that we can find elsewhere in the Old Testament, but here what we have is a time frame. The details shed for us here is what, how long this kingdom lasts. It's a thousand years. And it says it six times. Six times. I mean, God should have to say something more than once to get our attention. But when he says it six times... It's not a symbol. It's, it means what it says. In the first three verses, we have Satan's incarceration. In verses 7 through 9, we have his final work. He's allowed to go out and pursue one final work. He's given opportunity to rebel one final time. And then in verse 10, we see his final destruction. And his final destruction is going to be just like Antichrist's final destruction. Throwing in the lake of fire. It's funny because Antichrist has been here before. We've talked about it. Okay? He is cast. In, he, he goes to hell and he's kept in his own specific place for his own specific purpose. And then he comes back to attempt his final work and then he's cast into the lake of fire. So as for Satan's Superman, as for Satan's Messiah, so for him. Satan is here, he has a work, he's cast into hell, he's imprisoned for a time, he's allowed to come back and attempt one final work, and then he's cast into the lake of fire. So the story of Satan's seed mirrors Satan itself. 20 verse 1, and I'm going to wrap up with this, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. A single angel with a key to the bottomless pit. This reference here is to the abyss. That word in Greek is the word from which we get the word abyss. He is arrested. He's apprehended, arrested, judged, and sentenced by one officer. An arresting officer, a judge, and a bailiff all in one. Single angel with his own keys, a heavenly deputy, serves an arrest warrant. There is no due process. He doesn't get a trial. doesn't get to plead his case. Judge, jury, execution. 
There are people, wicked people in this world that don't deserve due process. We think that due process of the law, everybody deserves. That's not, that's, that's constitution. That's American freedom. That's the best we can do when man has fallen. But when we're an immoral people, God's rule is not due process. If you're guilty, you're guilty. He's not going to sit there and put up with some judge making a case and lying and using corruption and trying to trap people in their words to get a, 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 a guilty man off. Satan doesn't get due process. There are people here today in power in our government that don't deserve due process. In my opinion, there are people in government that are guilty. They should be arrested, given a speedy trial, let them say what they want to say, found guilty, and, and executed. There are people in government in this country that should be hung in the streets for all to see. That's my opinion, one man's opinion. I don't have the authority to do it, nor do I desire it. We can pray for it. We can pray for righteousness. Wicked people, evil people. The news media is at the top of the list. They're a terrorist organization. Terrorists exist to control people through fear and terror. So terrorists use lies, exaggerations, Fear and violence. And textbook definition, the news media in this country is a terrorist organization. Terrorists shouldn't be dealt with through due process. They should be destroyed so that people can have peace. The news media is a terrorist organization. We should conceive of them and pray against them as such. Evil, wicked people. But Satan gets no due process. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. Doesn't take a heavenly army. He fights a heavenly army in Revelation 12. But here it doesn't take a heavenly army. It takes one officer. One officer to nab him and to throw him into the abyss. So when God has all the power in the world to put a stop to Satan the moment he's ready, and it doesn't take an army, God can do the same thing with our country. God doesn't need a nuclear superpower like Russia or China. He doesn't need Russian collusion to overthrow this country. He could overthrow this nation with a band of men on horses if that's what he wanted to do. Because America, like all the other nations that have come and gone, Gentile nations, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome, is just a drop in the bucket. When God's done, he's done. When God's ready to judge, he judges. And he doesn't need our help. That's a very important lesson to learn. When we see Satan here arrested, when we see a single angel, a deputy sent to arrest him on sight, to sentence him on sight, and to cast him into jail on sight, then who are we to fear him? All those that are lost should fear the devil. Why? They should fear. Because they've got an angry God above. They've got a guilty conscience within. They have a lurking devil that's like a roaring lion all around and they got hell yawning beneath them. So yeah, they should be afraid. We don't have to fear. Why do we fear the evil one? Why do we fear those who persecute us? When God's time has come, when God is ready, he doesn't have to fight Satan. Jesus doesn't have to go in the ring with Satan like that famous song by Carmen called The Champion. I mean, it's a great song, but it's a picture that's very unbiblical. It's very unbiblical. Satan only can do what God allows him to do. It's not this cosmic duality. That ought to encourage us. That ought to strengthen us, strengthen us in dark days. <clears throat> he wants to be king. He acts like he's king, but he never can be. 
He never can be. I'm going to end here today. Um, an angel has a set of keys. That's not the only set of keys. Christ has the master set. Satan himself has actually had these keys in his possession. This abyss that he opened, that is open for him, he actually opened it back in chapter 9. You remember when that star fell from heaven and he opened up the bottomless pit? What came out? What came out wasn't physical, but all was it literal. Hell was unleashed on earth. Demons, fallen angels, not tanks. Not Chinese missiles. Spiritual entities. Hell was unleashed on earth. Satan was allowed to open that abyss and unleash hell on earth. He didn't realize that in doing so, he was emptying it to prepare it for him. He was opening it up and emptying it out to make room for him. And here he gets what he deserves. Here he falls into the trap he made for others. And folks, we can rest in this. The trap that the media wants to set for Christians in this country, it blows my mind how when somebody goes into a synagogue and opens fire in New Zealand, we all of a sudden want to take away everybody's AR-15s here in America. It's all over the media. Gun control, gun control, gun control. But when somebody goes in with bombs in Sri Lanka and kills Christian people, now I know most of these people were Catholic I'm not talking about Christian in the sense of Bible believing. It's a lot of dead religion over there. But when somebody goes in and kills or bombs people that are claiming the name of Christ, we don't even talk about it. We don't want to talk about who did it or why they did it. Well, the reason why homosexuals and Muslims can get along even though Islam and Saudi Arabia publicly executes homosexuals is because they have the same spirit, the same father, the devil. And they, the devil is accustomed to laying traps for people. The media, therefore, his servants lays traps. But rest assured, they're going to fall into the trap they've laid. David prayed for that. He prayed that his enemies that had laid traps for him would fall into those traps. Let's pray thus. Because we know the father of all these wicked people is ultimately going to fall into the abyss that he's opened so that he can unleash his fury on the world. He falls into it. He gets what he wanted to give to others. And in fact, we're going to see next week that this arrest, this casting into the pit isn't done in secret. It's a public spectacle. People stand and behold, not just those alive, but those in the pit of hell that are his ultimate victims. Satan labors to get as many people into hell as possible. He wants people to go to hell. He wants people to die in their sins. He lies to them. He deceives them. He promises them all these things and then he betrays them. It's an age-old story that repeats itself, repeats itself, repeats itself. And man always falls for it. But there's going to be a public spectacle. What he labored to give and get for everyone else that's lost, he's going to get it himself. And they're going to see it. And they're going to wonder. That's what's talked about right there. Isaiah 14, where we're talked about Lucifer falling from heaven. It's the very thing we see here in the first three verses. His arrest and his imprisonment. Those things are sources of hope as we live in days where persecution is coming. I wanted to get farther than this today, but I thought it was nice to introduce these things. So we, we kind of got into verse 1. We'll continue. Uh, as long as we can until uh, we head for Peru. So um, 
It's good to be back with you guys again. I hope this was a blessing to you. Let's pray over the meal, and then we can fellowship one with another. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, it's a map, and if we'll read it and we'll study it and compare Scripture with Scripture, so much that seems to be a, a dark secret on the surface is really easily explainable. And Lord, we look forward to the days when you're not just going to come for your church, but where you're going to overthrow the wicked, where you're going to rule and reign on this earth, where all the promises in this present creation are fulfilled, and then when this creation is destroyed and you give us a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness for all time. We look for the day when our old adversary, the devil, is finished with his work, when he's apprehended and arrested and cast into a cell and ultimately sentenced for life. We look forward to that day when we're freed of our enemy, when we're freed of unrighteousness. Thank you in Christ that we're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And that one day in our new resurrection bodies, we'll ever be with the Lord and actually free from the presence of sin. Lord, we look forward to that day when Jesus, your anointed, must reign. Until such time, we play... Pray that you would continue to save people, Lord, that you would continue to save the lost, that you will continue to draw uh, lost sheep from the house of Israel to you, Lord. Um, we pray for the church there in Israel, that you will empower them to be bold and to share the gospel, and you will prepare people that you intend to use in the future to, to fulfill those promises made to the fathers. You are a God who keeps your word, and uh, we praise you for it. Thank you for the food that's been prepared for us today. May it give us strength. May we find joy in doing something that should be a source of joy in this life so surrounded by vanity. To eat, to drink, and to be merry one with another is a gift from God. And we thank you from that, for that as Solomon thought, thanked you and acknowledged. These things we ask in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, who must reign and put all enemies under his feet, and he will. In his name we ask these things. Amen.